Welcome back to the Price Well Podcast. Today we have a newcomer to the podcast. I don't think that you were, I don't think you podcasted with us before I came on. Kenton mm-hmm. Angle, uh, mastermind behind America Labs, was a uh, co-founder of Arms Race Nutrition, was heavily involved with Core Nutritional, still is, works very closely with Doug. Um, actually, one thing that I learned about you recently is that you were one of the first employees at USP Labs, who's, yeah. uh, you know, obviously a big name in sports nutrition. So, Ken, Ken is, it's so awesome to have you on here. Uh Obviously, we've become friends and had some really great discussions. And recently, for everyone that's listening at home, uh, we started getting into a discussion a couple, probably about a week ago, I think. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you wanted to take this to an article and publish it. And I wanted to seize the opportunity to get it on my <laughs> channel. <laughs> get that scoop. Yeah. So, Ken, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate uh, it. You're up in Canada, right? Right. Medicine at Alberta. It's minus 15 degrees centigrade which is i think uh, about minus five fahrenheit oh my god i'm not complaining anymore (laughs) that's cool (laughs) so you have a background that is unlike well part of the things that we've been talking about is that there is no real standardized way to get into this industry there's no standardized education for this but your background in sociology and philosophy is kind of interesting um how you got to here because you still you know, I, I, let's dispel this. You talk a lot about formulations on different podcasts. Today, we're going to be talking a lot more about the community and how people get here. We're not going to talk too much science, although it might pop in a little bit. How exactly did you end up in the position that you are? <laughs> that's, a good, that's a great question. So I tore my labrum. So let, let me back up, reverse from that. So I experienced difficulties with substance abuse and homelessness from about the ages of 15 to 18 or so. I became addicted to drugs, I think, when I was 13. I started using them when I was 11 or 12. So from the ages of 12 to 18, experienced all of the accoutrement associated with drug addiction. So teen homelessness, was arrested a number of times. When I was arrested on the final time, I was placed on house arrest. So I had a a year-long house arrest. I was allowed to leave the house to go to a a job which produced frac sand. That may be an irrelevant term to you here in Alberta where we fracturate wells. It's the sand that goes in the well to pressurize it. Wow. So I was literally shoveling. I was on the business end of a shovel for 12 hours. <laughs> so I was allowed to leave the house from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. But when you're on house arrest or if you're on recognizance, so if you're in the pre-trial period, they'll phone your house. So they just phone your house almost as if they do for COVID checkups when you're quarantining. It's on an honor system more or less. So they would not phone me until 6.30. So I started working out. So I'd go from work from five to five and then I'd work out in that hour and a half. So I started getting heavily into working out. And as I do with everything, overexpressed it, became totally obsessed without, without the requisite knowledge or foundation. So I tore my labrum. So as I want to do, started obsessing over potential soft tissue injury reparative mechanisms. What, what kinds of supplements or strategies, modalities could I pursue to repair soft tissue? And that led me to an ingredient called Cis's quadrangularis, which is old hat for us now. Mm-hmm. In 2006 was not, it was actually a fairly innovative ingredient coming over from Ayurveda. And I think was first introduced by USP Labs. So I became an evangelist for this ingredient, Cis's quadrangularis, was evangelizing it on a forum called anabolicminds.com, which is, even the word now is anachronistic, but back then it was the hot, hot shit. <laughs> if, you want, if you wanted to have a good discussion on a forum. And the owner of USP Labs took a notice, took a notice that my discussions were empirically based, that they were evidentiary. And so he offered me a job. That was in 2006 and haven't, haven't looked back. And about minds used to be a big deal. I mean, it used oh, to yeah. really matter. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's like almost comedic to say that, but yeah, it did. There was, yeah. and I talked <clears throat> about this on another podcast, but <clears throat> there are no more gatekeepers. There are gatekeepers are absent from a number of industries, but they're particularly important in industries like ours where there is no standardized or mechanistic labor input production. So in other words, there is no institutional knowledge that corresponds to how you receive a job in the supplement industry. And so gatekeepers are important for an industry like ours to infrastructure it properly. And in order to determine, for example, what constitutes innovation, what constitutes a good ingredient versus a bad ingredient. There are organizations like the AHPA, for example, but in terms of our sports nutrition niche, our small ecosystem, gatekeepers ha- had an important function in that context. And the forums, for example, Mind and Muscle Forum and AnabolicMinds.com Forum 
had that function. They were important, I think. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I think social media has taken some of the places of forums, but um, I mean, even we host our own forum that is just, um, I don't go on it very often for good reasons. You know, it is <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very hive mindy. Yeah. I you know, I'm apologizing to anyone that, that is a follower on there right now. It is our own, but um, I don't go to Anablock Minds anymore. Uh, well, I think we've moved forward a lot. Social media has taken care of like the good parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of interesting because there used to be a lot of people that got jobs off of forums. That was yeah. a normal thing. It's funny. That was the only standardized mechanism. You became a forum rep or ambassador. That's what I did. And then if you were sufficiently talented or industrious, you'd be offered a job. There's a, there's a word in Greek. It's organon. And organons are centers or mechanisms of knowledge. They're a, 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 in a certain way an epistemic mechanism that differentiates good from bad if it's normative or or it qualifies what constitutes knowledge in a community. And for the Greeks, the polis, for example, as a collective was the organon. The, the fact that there was a, a small set of individuals, landowning males, who are allowed to vote in senates or municipalities. And these organons help determine what constituted knowledge. Now that's bad because it's an authoritative way of distributing knowledge Mm. and you want to democratize knowledge but nothing is either good nor bad i tend to not look at things in binary so the good part about organons which is what gatekeepers did prior to let's say the 1980s is gatekeepers tended to coalesce knowledge in a certain community or a certain form of social organization and it was therefore easier to discriminate what constitutes good from bad or valid knowledge from non-valid knowledge And I think in a number of areas, we're experiencing an epistemic crisis of validity. We don't know who to trust. And it's no longer my set of information versus your set of information. So we're not having data-based conversations. We're having reductive conversations, which are essentially fallacious, where we're appealing to separate sorts of authorities. And those authorities are conferred their authoritative status, not through any sort of vetting mechanism, but simply the fact that they exist or have a large audience or they happen to correspond with our certain biases. So it's it's unfortunate in some ways that the forums have dissipated, that they're no longer any sort of influencing force because they had that good function. Now, like 4chan, they were also cesspools of stupidity and ignorance. <laughs> so yeah. That was bad. And when you centralize stupidity and ignorance at that scale, like any scale of economy, it tends not only to perpetuate, but potentiate. It, <laughs> it grows in intensity. So that was bad. But the good part is it was our industry's only standard labor input pathway, I think. Mm-hmm. You can't go to, so you went to Rutgers for dietetics. You can't go to Rutgers for supplement science. Right. And that's problematic because supplement science is multidisciplinary. That involves organic chemistry, involves biochemistry, it involves physiology, exercise physiology. More specifically, you right. have to you have to know how to interpret data properly. That that requires some familiarity with methodology. More generally speaking, it's a very strange thing to be in this industry, and that's what I think partly motivated this discussion that we were having is that it exists in the socioeconomic penumbra or shadow of big pharma. And so you can get a pharmacology degree or, or a pharmaceutics degree. And so therefore, there's a certain amount of prestige associated with entering that industry. That prestige legitimates the educational institutions. Legitimating the educational institution requires people or not requires, incentivizes people of higher status to go there. People of higher status going to those education institutions has a feedback loop. So these individuals enter into that industry and it recurs on itself over and over. We have nothing like that. So how do we determine who's a good formulator and who's a bad formulator? How do we determine what's a good formula and what's a bad formula? And what I've said before is that the valuable function of you guys, Fitness Informant, Stack, Supplement, Snoop, is that you guys are playing that organon function. People are starting to coalesce around the knowledge that you guys disseminate. So, Yeah, when you were starting to talk about uh, <clears throat> different organons and, and how it's, it's fallacious at, <laughs> at best, um, yeah. it started to make me think of what a lot of, you know, we deal with a lot of, uh, you know, negative sayers about our content, mm-hmm. but also there it's accepted in other areas. It, it did make me think a lot of the, the reviewers, uh, the content producers, as I like to look at ourselves. Um, and it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, I did, I did go to college, but the, I think the best thing I got out of college was learning how to read studies. And then from yeah. there, it was just learning for myself. My, yeah. My mother has her doctor and she absolutely hates when I talk about the fact that college taught me nothing that I actually use in my day-to-day <laughs> life, you know, yeah, yeah. outside of giving me the tools to learn for myself. 
mm -hmm. um, which has been the most valuable thing possible. But even Mike went to school for engineering, you know, and mm -hmm. we're, we're doing just fine over here. So it's, it's a very interesting concept. And I, and I could tell you that the majority of formulators, you know, you brought up formulators, I, I, I would say most of the ones that I run into either are registered dietitians or exercise science, you mm -hmm. know, they're yeah, there's some farm D's in there, but yeah, it's not a standardized pathway for sure. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Did you always, before the CISIS uh, events, did you have an interest in science and and health, or was that completely brand new at that point? No, it was complete. I had no interest wow. in it whatsoever. Yeah, none whatsoever. <laughs> I, like, it couldn't have been less. It was like via negativa. If you, there was negative knowledge, that's how much I had about science in the body. But I tore my labrum and I obsess over things. So you Google labrum and then you have to understand insertion points. You have to understand what a fibroblast does. If you understand what a fibroblast does, you're automatically going to Google, well, so what is an osteoblast? What is an osteoclast? How are these things related? So then you have to Google genomic me mechanisms for fibroblasts and understand how they work, which means you need to understand collagen synthesis and protein synthesis. So it's just a, it's a recursive loop where I would Google one thing and didn't understand what a word meant. So I, okay, fuck it. I'll Google this word that I don't understand. And then that would lead me down a rabbit hole. Yeah. I, uh, I found with most things in this topic overall with nutrition, it was like a cycle. Like you didn't yep. understand like three things, but once you learned the fourth thing, all the 30 before it made sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, yeah, we were talking about was, AMPK the other day with, uh, yeah. with Sear. Okay, yeah. And I remember that like, didn't make a lot of sense. A lot of with those cycles, a lot of it didn't yep. make sense until i got through a few different topics and then it all came back to me. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I was doing this to our discussion. I was doing this independent research concomitantly with my schooling. So my focus in school, and uh, forgive me for how condescending this comes across. There's no way to talk about your schooling without seeming like an asshat. But my focus in school, I did a graduate degree in sociology where I was focused on the social demography of ADHD. And then I carried that through. I was doing a PhD where I was focused on the social demography of Aboriginal women who experienced miscarriage left that because of a personality conflict, we'll say, with my PhD supervisor and a focus on arms race, a business I was involved with at the time. And then now I'm completing a PhD in philosophy. But to, to steer us back or dovetail back in the conversation that we were having, which is essentially the psych psychosocial determinants of entrepreneurship in the supplement industry, Social demography essentially looks at the social, political, and economic factors that influence demography. Demography being the process of population cycle, so birth and death. And what always interested me in social demography and sociology more generally is that I want to understand non-agentic systems. Or in other words, I want to understand how systems operate independent of the individual constituents within that system. But I don't only want to understand it at the system level, which is why I say psycho, uh, psychosocial determinants. So social being my background corresponding to social demography. But for example, when I was doing my first graduate degree, I was looking at the experience of adult students who are ADHD as the social demography of ADHD, which contains a psychological element. And the psycho psychological element in which I was interested was social psychology. So understanding how agents as individual units interface with a system that may co-determine their behavior and then trying to investigate what that co-determination looks like. What are the variables that constitute the co-determination between an individual on one hand and the systems to which they're subject? And there's a lot of research done in this area. That's what I was telling you on a sort of psychometric taxonomy called the Big Five Personality Index codified in the mnemonic ocean. So openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeability, and neuroticism. And this research is fascinating because it's, it's contradicted by what you and I find when we reflect on the volume of our experience with CEOs or entrepreneurs in this industry. So in a social demographic context, I want to ask the question, what population factors on a political, social, or economic basis influence the psychology of the kind of individual who finds themselves starting a dietary supplement company, given the unique eco, uh, economic ecology in which this industry finds itself? Because it's it exists only in reference to the pharmaceutical industry. It doesn't have an independent existence, right? We are dietary supplements referentially because we are not drugs. We are 201 FFs in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act because we are not 201 Gs. So that was the discussion that sort of elicited this podcast, I guess. 
it's taken us uh, it, since that podcast, at least, or at least that, that conversation, I've thought about it a lot. And I've thought about every CEO that I can think of and their origins and where they came from and what inspired them to think that their idea is unique and profitable yeah. enough that they should follow it. Because yeah. I don't know, in my opinion, people ask me a lot, you know, why haven't you started a company? Because I, I think to consumers, I look like I have it all figured out. And um, I have no interest in doing it because <laughs> I've seen the trials and the tribulations that you go through. But right. uh, most, and I'm starting to think of all the people that we work with that <laughs> we'll think we're thinking we're talking about them. But um, the people who decide this idea is unique enough and it is profitable enough that they decide I'm going to invest in this, where they came from and where they got that kind of uh, courage and confidence. It's, it's mm -hmm. interesting because I know people from all different walks of life. So I know orphans. I know, uh, I know a, a heroin addict that came into being a CEO. I know uh, people who come from a great family that supported them that became a mm -hmm. CEO of a company. It's, there's a lot of different origin stories to this. Yeah. So maybe it's worth, I wonder if it's worthwhile to unpack precisely what the big five personality index means, how it influences entrepreneurship and maybe discussing absolutely the contours of our discussion. So one caveat or, or prefatory note is that you identified something that, that I find to be a complicating factor in discussing taxonomical indices, which is that people reduce a complex taxonomy to individuals. So what we're talking about here is personality types, which are taxonomical classifications and taxonomies just like in a physiological sense group individuals by shared traits but within those groups there's going to be vastly more inter-individual variation than there will be intergroup variation so we're not talking about persons we're talking about personality types and that's why when you talk to trait researchers or personality trait they're called personality trait researchers they'll tell you that their work is descriptive but not applicative in other words it describes broad taxonomical classifications of individuals according to what I'll explain later are, are lexical associations or word-based associations between repeatedly verifiable behaviors. And they constellate in a group and we give that group the name taxonomy, but they're not applicative. You can't take the big five personality index and then apply it like a diagnosis to an individual. So anybody who you and I know, relax, we're not talking about at <laughs> the time. With that being said, Taxonomies are useful because once you collect a sufficiently large number of individuals in that taxonomy, and once you control for a sufficiently large amount of covariate factors and variables within it, you can start to determine how what you might say the arbitrary descriptors we use for that taxonomic classification that, that differentiate between them you can start to predict on a large basis how people to whom that taxonomical classification in broad strokes might behave. So for somebody like me, who's in, interested in the interface between the individual and the system, for entrepreneurship, specifically entrepreneurship in our strange little industry, I'm interested in why does it appear that there's a specific phylum or species of individual who starts companies in this industry and what are the social determinants that push them in that direction? So what do I mean by these taxonomical classifications or the big five personality index? So as I said earlier, it's codified by the mnemonic ocean, openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Openness to experience describes someone's tolerance to novel ideas. So when a novel idea or a unique stimuli is introduced to that individual, either in their endogenous setting, so the, the setting in which they were born, raised, et cetera, that's unique or not unique, that's common to them, or in a lab setting, how does that individual respond? Do they shut down? Do they open up to the experience? Conscientiousness, trait conscientiousness, which is a very high predictor of both entrepreneurship and business success, equal only to IQ, in terms of predicting someone's socioeconomic success measured in the sort of twin pillars of lifetime earnings and educational status is constituted by two subdivisions. Industriousness, which is just what it sounds like. How hard does someone work? But work here needs to be characterized. It means over how many obstacles for how long of a time does an individual persist? A researcher mm -hmm. named Duckworth describes this as grit. So how much grit do you have? And the other one being orderliness. 
orderliness is contraposed to openness to experience on a conceptual basis, and let me under explain why. If you're open to experience, what that requires is what researchers call conceptual permeability. When you encounter anything in the world, the first thing that you do, and this is pre-reflective and pre-valuative, so in other words, before you have a conscious attachment to this encounter with the thing, your brain conceptualizes it. It organizes it according to a category. This is a cat, this is a dog. So in other words, it applies taxonomical categories. Mm. How rigidly you pre-reflexively make that determination tends to determine whether or not you score higher in conscientiousness or openness to experience. And they can co-variate. So in other words, openness to experience or conscientiousness can be the continuous variable underlining a study on conscientiousness that looks at how a participant responds to a control. But they tend to be counterposed because people who are open to experience look at concepts as permeable. People who are conscientious do not. They tend to look at concepts as fixed. So let's take this in a non-dietary supplement context because I often find reference to analogy is the best way to, to bring people along. In a political context, something like American, someone who is dispositionally liberal, which is not, not coterminous with politically liberal, I don't <laughs> want to get into that discussion, might look at American as something like something more fluid. They interpret it as a fluid category so that many, many kinds of people can be American. Someone who's dispositionally conservative, which again is not coterminous with politically conservative, might assess that category as being more rigidly defined. Here is the way in which I parameterize the term American. And there's lots of distance between the two and lots of people populate that topology between mm. open and close. So conscientiousness and openness to experience are often counterposed with one another. Extroversion is precisely what it sounds like. It describes how you gain your energy, essentially. Does being social expend energy or recharge it? And that's on a continuum between extroversion and introversion. Agreeableness is how much do you seek out social interaction and what is your conflict orientation? Are you comfortable with conflict or does it make you uncomfortable? And then neuroticism is essentially your emotional stability. So how inward thinking are you versus how outward thinking are you? Do you spend a lot of time on your own thoughts? Okay. So this, this is the big five personality index. And you can see why I describe it as taxonomic because on, on at this broad level, it's tantamount to fucking astrology. Like you can't take someone and say, Oh, they're conscientiousness. And this describes their whole personality, right? People are varied and complex. And so these are merely taxonomical classifications. When I said they're lexical, what that means is that these specific subdivisions are indexed to words that operate in a certain context, this context being within the taxonomy. So people will often say, well, I don't think I'm conscientious. You're, you're decontextualizing the way in which conscientious is used here to describe trait orderliness or trait industriousness. Mm -hmm. And so people hearing this might, might take them out of context, or might be tempted to, but it's important to understand how they're measured, how they're defined and so on. So overall, most entrepreneurs score very highly in conscientiousness. This is not surprising. Right. And score higher than average as compared with individuals who fall in a normal distribution of covariation between conscientiousness and openness to experience in openness to experience. What the fuck does what I just said mean? It <laughs> means that typically these two terms are counterposed, but they can be covariated with one another. So you can, in other words, if you want to see how conscientious someone is, you provide them a lexical survey or you do an observational study to examine their behavior, right? That's the, uh, the dependent variable, the independent variable you know, being the person. Right. The covariate is a continuous measure that precedes the study. So you want to see, for example, what a covariate is to control for stochasticity or randomness. You want to understand how this covariate operates on the independent and dependent variables to explain inter-individual variation. So usually when you do that, you find a certain degree of covariance between conscientiousness and openness to experience. So how hard someone works and how conceptually rigid they are. Owners, CEOs, entrepreneurs have a very high degree of conscientiousness and higher openness to experience than would be predicted by randomness or that you find in a normal distribution, but it's still fairly low. And then there, it's sort of all over the place. Uh, extroversion, introversion varies by industry. 
agreeableness, they tend to be fairly agreeable. And then neuroticism, they're almost always, sorry, they're almost always very low in neuroticism. And the reason why they're not very low in or very high in neuroticism is on a functional basis, you cannot make as many decisions as a CEO makes on a daily basis if you are too introspective. So if you're introspecting on every decision that you make, the thousands of decisions you make a day, an average person makes about 3,000 decisions a day, a CEO may, as, may make as many as 9,000 discrete individual decisions, some of which are very consequential, you can't be inward directed, mm -hmm. right? So this is a, on a broad consultative basis, this is what a CEO is. What I've noticed in the article that I'm writing and what I wanna do for the research on is that it seems like our industry attracts more dispositionally or temperamentally conservative individuals than you would find in other industries. And as I said, this is not coterminous with political affiliation, but I, I, I don't think this is, uh, this is not revelatory to say that I think our industry is characterized by more politically conservative than politically yeah. liberal individuals than average as well. And so hearkening back to how I tend to look at things, I am interested in, at the end of this incredibly circumlocutory and <laughs> masturbatory explanation. I'm interested in what are the psychosocial determinants that cause this sort of individual who is dispositionally conservative to start a supplement company. And then for people like us, what sort of consequences does this have for their business activity, both good and bad, because there are very good characteristics and very bad characteristics. I think we, we, we clearly have seen the uh, consequences because we, we got to this conversation. Right. Uh, <laughs> we, deal with, yeah. we deal with these people on, on a, a pretty regular basis. Um, so are you looking to, are you looking to study this or in terms of this article that you're writing is, is this just kind of based on your own personal experience? So it, it would depend. I mean, the, the problem with any psychometric analysis is that they are, they are inherently methodologically compromised. Meaning if you're asking someone questions, you can't blind them. They know that they're being asked questions, right? right? You can randomize them, but it can't be double blind, double blind, sorry. And there is no placebo. So right. there's always the stochastic element to any sort of either quantitative or qualitative data gathering when it comes to human persons. So quantitative being you distribute a survey to thousands of people. Mm -hmm. And then you code the responses and then you look for relationships, statistical and probabilistic relationships between the cofactors and determine number one, a direction of causality. So which factor influences the other and then interrelationships or covariance qualitative meaning what we're doing right now. I sit down with you and hold an interview. I tried to do a qualitative study when I was in my first master's and nobody was having it. Nobody, nobody wanted to talk to me about it and a quantitative analysis is hard. So this would be what's called an investigatory or exploratory article where you propose a potential theoretical relationship between empirically observed factors and try to explain it. And in a social demographic context, this means you try to explain it with reference to, as I said, the social, political, and economic factors that, that influence this specific aggregation of individuals in this specific industry. As I said before, my theory is that it's twofold, really. There's two factors. Because there's no standardized labor input process or institutional process associated with creating someone who works in the supplement industry, and because we exist in big pharma's penumbra, we are the, to diss my own kind, ugly redheaded stepchild of, <laughs> of life sciences, right? Or biosciences industry. This does a few things. Number one, it restricts access to capital. Because we exist in this sort of regulatory purgatory, an average dietary supplement firm doesn't have the legions of lawyers and compliance and regulatory officers to ensure that the products that they are producing conform to 21 CFR part 111, which is the part of the Code of, Code of Federal Regulations that dictates how you manufacture, distribute, label, and package dietary supplements. And as a consequence, lending institutions tend not to invest in these kinds of companies. The reason being is it's a high degree of volatility. The FDA could kick in your door and take everything away from you in a second. That then has a, uh, should we say a redoubling effect on the kinds of institutions that can start within our industry. They can only grow so large. It's very hard to scale without free access to capital. 
which is why only a few companies in the history of dietary supplements have ever crossed that massive several hundred million dollars to billion dollar revenue or not revenue uh, market valuation mark much 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 lower in revenue that process right then constrains the kind of individual who enters the industry so if you're somebody who is pharmacologically or physiologically inclined and you're going to spend let's call it $75,000 on higher education. Are you going to go in the industry in which the whole industry in terms of market valuation, which is difficult to assess because there are so few publicly traded dietary supplement companies is smaller than a medium sized pharma company, <laughs> right? Like which, right. which one of these has better opportunities. So, because of that lack of institutional input and because we exist in big pharma's shadow or penumbra, individuals who have a very high tolerance to volatility and a high degree of confidence in self, even more than a normal CEO, tend to be individuals who start companies here. Right. Because you're not going to receive any institutional assistance. You can't do a series A funding round of venture capitalists. You can't knock on Warren Buffett's door and ask him to do a series A funding round. You can't go to California and do a VC funding round. I would actually, now that I'm thinking about, sorry, I would add a third category, which is there's very few proprietary technologies. Mm -hmm. So if you're starting a software company and you develop, uh, let's say a proprietary and predictive algorithm for psychographic testing that you can sell to Facebook, someone's going to invest in you because there's high market capitalization for technology companies. There's institutional investors. There is that standardized labor input. You can get a software engineering degree from Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, et cetera, that then confers the institution legitimacy, et cetera. All of that, we don't have any of that. We're out in the middle of the woods here, essentially just on our own, like a bunch of podunks, figuring you know things out, tinkering as we go along. So just on, a, on an assumptive basis, and this is speculative, it would be strange if a different sort of individual didn't start companies, you know what I mean, in this industry. Mm -hmm. It would be very strange indeed, given all of those social factors and economic factors. So back to the social demography, it would be strange indeed if Harvard graduates were starting dietary supplement companies with $10,000 in their mom's basement, which is not an aberrant experience in the dietary supplement industry. So because of that socioeconomic pressure, you get a certain kind of individual that I'm calling dispositionally conservative. So what is a dispositionally conservative individual? Number one, they score abnormally high in measures of conscientiousness, specifically trait orderliness. So they are conceptually rigid. This sort of thing goes here because it's discriminated from this sort of thing that goes here. A is A because it's not B and B is B because it's not A and any interdependence between them is superfluous or it's a tertiary factor that you can analyze after the fact very low in neuroticism. So they don't pay much attention to the way that they behave. Now, by the way, I, I want to, before we go forward here, that's not, it's not binary and it's not normative, as I said. So it's neither yes or no, and it's not good nor bad. There are very, very positive characteristics associated with a low degree of trait neuroticism. Mm -hmm. You tend to be a definitive person. You make quick decisions. You make accurate decisions a lot of the time because there's less noise. There's less intrapersonal noise, right? There's less introspective noise coloring your decision-making, but then there's bad traits because it, it, they tend dispositionally conservative individuals tend to be bad managers of people. If you don't spend a ton of time introspecting on your own behavior, which is associated with a high degree of neuroticism, you're not going to have the theory of mind to project on how other people respond to your behaviors. What you're going to do is a high. So when you pair those two traits, high conscientiousness and very low neuroticism, pair rigid conceptuality with a low degree of introspection, there's no reason why you would assess your behaviors or anybody else's behaviors because the psychological factors associated with decision-making are functionally relevant. What's important is that this is the decision that needs to be made. However, it impacts people, fuck them. It doesn't matter. Right. So there's good, like I said, good and bad. And that's who I think starts, starts companies in this industry is highly dispositionally conservative individuals. And then what could covariate underneath that is degrees of intelligence because IQ is highly predictive for business success. So there's right. actually a linear and distributive relationship between company success and IQ up to about 140. And then very interestingly, it starts to reverse because people who are of too high intelligence also often pair with a high degree of neuroticism. So <laughs> it, it's a linear and distributive. In other words, it, it, it 
is sequential going up and distributed in terms of distributes success abnormally along this line until it just falls off. So then our discussion that we were having is what are the consequences of dispositionally conservative individuals starting industries? And I identified for you what I think to be a few cognitive biases or logical errors associated with characterological or dispositional conservatism. I think you've described, I mean, for better or for worse, because there are definitely good reasons, uh, good attributes of the things you just talked about, for better or for worse, quite a few different leaders in the industry that I can identify. Um, and it's uh, the most often, when you, I think the part that you mentioned was the, the leadership factor, the management of other people factor. Um, I've most often, I've, I've spoken to a lot of leaders about, um, I, I use the Dyson analogy that the creator of the Dyson, I don't know his name, but the guy who invented the Dyson that doesn't lose suction over time, like he is not writing marketing materials. He is not managing teams. He's not in HR. He is in his office creating the next vacuum. Right. And he has someone that handles the rest of the things that are much more in terms of character made for those types of situations. And I think that's, that's probably one, we'll probably get into this, but one downfall of the people in our industry is that people want to be famous, smart, rich, and the leadership, and, and, and they want the credit for all of it. Whereas right. they don't kind of, you know, delegate into teams. So you might ask then what uh, in a dispositionally or characterologically conservative individual predisposes them to a high degree of granular management. So what mm -hmm. causes them? Cause I think for me, the, the commonality in all of the traits that you identified is control. We want to mm -hmm. have exert control. So it's conscientiousness and rigid conceptual borders, right? If you have lived your entire life as a dispositionally conservative individual, one thing that inclines you towards is something like the, the myth of the individual or the ethos of rugged individualism, which is that all causes and effects are consequences of individuals. This is a conservative disposition that we see manifest itself both in interpersonal behavior as well as let, let's say a political realm. And, and I should say, by the way, that for all of the ocean indexes, there's a high degree of co-determination between how you score in the big five personality index and things like alcohol and tobacco consumption, mm. drug addiction, achievement, which industry you go into. They're not determinative or constitutive, but there is a, so the reason why I mentioned that is there is some empirical basis for what we're talking about. But individuals who score abnormally high on conscientiousness then tend to buy into the notion of this myth of the individual or consider everything as being agentically caused. That's great because you need that in order to start a company, mm -hmm. any company, not just in our company. 95% of business entities fail within the first two years. If you don't have an almost pathological <laughs> or... or a psychopathic belief in yourself, why would you start a company? You have to believe right. that despite all of the saturation, this is now I'm talking about our industry, the lack of the, the degree of saturation, the lack of segmentation, the lack of proprietary technologies, the marketing dependence, marketing and branding dependence, which is fickle because it's, it's a high degree of randomness associated with what people think is cool. You have to be psychopathically self-oriented and have a pathological belief in your own abilities to start a company. Right. So if you've lived your entire life that way, because disposition like big five personality index traits have a high heritable component. We haven't necessarily tied them to either individual genes or genomic clusters to say X gene causes conscientiousness, but we do, we do know it's heritable to a, to a factor of about 0.6 to 0.8, depending on the study in question, which means that 60 to 80% of an individual's variance in score on conscientiousness or openness or et cetera is heritable. So whether that's genomic or shared environment or whatever the case may be, and that's a whole other can of worms that we won't open when it comes to social psychology and uh, social genomics research. But if you've lived your entire life that way, why, when you are most successful, would you have any cause to doubt that your decision-making process is the correct one? Right. Now, that's an awesome trait because when you're doing business with someone like that, if they're your CEO, if they're your business partner, et cetera, they make very authoritative decisions. But once you combine that social history, their individual social history, with rigid conceptuality, right? They have rigid demarcations between things. 
trying to permeate that conceptual border and open them up to new decision-making processes is difficult. Mm. And how this tends to express itself over time, and this is one of the biases that I've identified as being associated with dispositional conservatives in our industry, and I told you about, was the headwinds tailwinds fallacy. And the headwinds tailwinds fallacy is both a logical fallacy and a cognitive bias that causes people to ascribe faulty causality to events. So everything that, that happens that's good is a result of their individual action or not their individual action, but their team allayed as individuals, not as a system, right? Not as a system of interlocking parts, but as a constellation of individuals. I have a team of seven individuals rather than I have a team that's infrastructured by a common vision and systems, et cetera. And I would always add to that too, that not only is it a team, but they're adding, they're, they're identified as individuals. That person hired those individuals. So as individuals, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, like yeah. he hired yeah. them. So even if those individuals did something good, he or she, I apologize, or she, or uh, whoever they, that or is, sir, yeah. or, no. <laughs> or X, yeah, right, uh, right. that, that human <laughs> yeah. hired that person. And so it's still that person's fault or credit, right? Credit, right. Exactly. And then the, the obverse to that is, so that's the headwinds. Or tailwinds, sorry, when things are when then headwinds are somebody else's fault. But mm -hmm. when I say somebody else, I mean that literally, as in some hyphen one, some one individual or some entity. Because again, we're combining a social history with rigid conceptuality. These this sort of individual is not predisposed to look at the systemic effect of a of an individual decision. So it's not perhaps it wasn't a product market fit. And if it wasn't a product market fit, what are the macroeconomic factors that determine the contours of our industry that made it not a that made it a nail fit that was inappropriate? Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's because of macroeconomic policy. That's complicated, by the way. The way that the Treasury and Fed interact isn't as it, it, it isn't as basic as some people represented. It. it could be something that's happening politically in China. Uh, dispositionally conservative individuals not going to examine those factors. They're going to say it's fucking FDA. The FDA fucked us, and what what else are we going to do? Uh, dispositionally liberal individual, if they started a company, which is rare, but if they did start a company, what they may be inclined to say are what are these factors that influence this? But they would probably never make a product in the first place, and they often don't because there's too high degree of neuroticism. Nobody's going to like this. It's going to suck. And how do I concretize all of my complex ideas into one thing? You need that. This is what I mean when I say it's a balance or a spectrum. You need that rigid conceptuality. It's just in this case that that's one way in which it tends to work against dispositionally conservative CEOs is not thinking in a, in a systemic way that might, that might allow them to open up the decision-making process to a wider array of inputs. Would you say that these concepts are, you know, it, it, it's what holds our industry back as a whole? I mean, we've been kind of in the same place since the 2000s. Yeah. yeah. So that's, I mean, that's a, that's another thing that you and I talked about. There's a cyclicity to our industry. It goes through cycles. Yeah. So prior to Jacked, uh, distributed by USP Labs, a product that I was involved in, there was BSN and this gargantuan see-through massive pre-workout, right? NO exploded, everything. Effervescence. Yeah. All I remember. Yeah. Every ingredient at the time was in that pre-workout. So Jack comes out and now it's ultra concentrated. Ultra concentrated determines the landscape for many years because that establishes a precedent, which I'll come back to that in a second. So put a pin in the precedential thinking. And then it's bucked at some point and now we're back to all inclusives. So uh, when you guys, the organons assess a pre-workout, typically you're not, not you guys so much, but less experienced reviewers, all-inclusiveness is in and of itself intrinsically valuable. But why is that valuable? That's not just because something has everything does not mean it's good. Right. Have those ingredients been vetted? Are they from trusted manufacturers? Are they doing independent third-party lab testing on it? Is there a rhyme or reason to the way that these ingredients are combined? I've seen it even kind of further. Sorry, but uh, uh, that that precedence, that um, dogmatic thought process, you know, through consulting. If we have a formula that is uh, pre-workout, for instance, and it doesn't contain, say, beta alanine, well, doesn't meet Shit. the. Yeah, you know, it's not. Well, yeah, but, but it's funny because you sit there and you're like, because I, I I am neither for or against beta alanine, right? Nothing yeah. is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And I, I'll say, well. You know, what is the reasoning you want it in there? Well, 
everyone has it in there. That's that, yeah. that has to be there. And it kind of comes back to like, well, the stack 3D commenters want it, right? Yeah. Uh, like, hey, hey, let's not attack Shane. I don't want him to. No, 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 no not, not at all. Shane's great. But like, his, like he has the most, um, his comment sections are like the most, oh, right. uh, you yeah. know, th those are. They're vociferous. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. You go on his Facebook, there's always a lot going on there. And yeah. those, uh, generally speaking, the people commenting there want those, like you said, those all-inclusives. Right. And um, so, some, sometimes I kind of prefer the product that doesn't do that because they're going against the grain. Right. Um, right. I, I, I hate that people feel that that pressure to follow that um, because... But, so then why do they feel it? That's what I was putting a pin in is... When you get a, a number of dispositionally conservative individuals together, they follow precedent because what defines, so let's look in a political context, what defines political conservatism? It's a maintenance of the status quo or sometimes regression, depending on right. which historical epoch that we're assessing. Right. So maintaining the status quo means adherence to precedent. So when you look at textualists, for example, textualists is a kind of judicial philosophy promulgated originally by Antonin Scalia, the, the late Supreme Court justice, that said that you should not infer intent, you should read the words precisely as they are, maintaining status quo, or uh, steris decis, which is a, a legal philosophy that means you stick to principle. So if you get a constellation or a collection of individuals who are cons dispositionally conservative, Mm -hmm. They're going to adhere to precedent. It takes a unique company or individual to break precedent, to do something innovative. So that's part of it. I think that's part of the reason why we do not progress. And I would say progress via segmentation the way other industries do. Part of it is precisely because of our regulatory and legislative status, the boundaries on innovation is between a 201G, which is a drug, and a 201FF, which is a dietary supplement. A large degree of innovation will push it from a 201FF to a 201G. So we're functionally constrained. If your ingredient is too effective, it's no longer a dietary supplement, it's now right. a drug, depending on how it affects the human body. And a number of other factors, obviously, that's reductive, but I, I don't wanna get so, into the factors that differentiate the two. And, and this is kind of where I've given a lot of credit to uh, Ghost is because, well, the, the innovation in terms of technology and, and science and ingredients, like you're, you're right. Anytime something seems to be working really, really well, it seems to put on an advisory list or found as uh, it's not to Shea anymore. Um, and I, 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 I'm closer to your thought process of uh, trying to see what we can get away with. Uh, but, you know, I do... You know, I've read CFR, I've read Shea. I mean, I, we, we know it, it, it's there. We know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we've seen other companies, uh, Dan over goes uh, consistently talks about legitimizing our industry because our industry is looked at as a bunch of meatheads. Redhead you know, stepchildren. Well, kind of what we're talking about right now, right? So yeah. for the things that we do. Um, and uh, well, what, there are probably some other ways that we can legitimize our industry and have other industries look up to us in some ways through... Uh, better packaging through better marketing, better community right. building. Um, but I think you're right. We are always kind of held back with how far we can go with the actual functionality of the product. Right. And that's, I think, for me at least, recalls uh, a second logical fallacy or cognitive bias that I think is associated with dispositionally conservative CEOs, which is they tend more than average, I think, to subscribe to survivorship bias or survivor bias. Survivorship bias or survivor bias being both a logical fallacy and a cognitive bias that dictates whatever survives is definitionally best. Mm -hmm. And maybe it might be worthwhile to describe why that's a logical error. It does not consider all of the other null factors. It doesn't institute a null hypothesis or a but-for analysis to say, but for this factor, could it have been better? Or would it not only survived, but propagated even more? Mm -hmm. And then it's a cognitive bias because it's probably evolutionarily ingrained when you're, you're, you're taking a look at a group of animals, which we're, we are, we're just walking meat sticks that can think and talk about our meat stick status. If you have an idea and you continue pursuing it and it contributes to your fitness, which in an evolutionary biological context just means your capacity to survive, mm -hmm. why would you question it? There's no reason to. If stick A is working to kill a buffalo then you're going to think that it was the stick's constitution, the way it was developed or engineered, the way you built it, 
because it survived is the best. Or in other words, the way that you built it is the reason why it survived, right? right. Th that's not true. That's not true in a cognitive basis. It's also not true in a logical basis. There are many factors, most of all, which is another thing that dispositionally conservative individuals are disinclined to accept, is stochasticity, randomness, variation, volati volatility. Somebody who is conservatively or dispositionally conservative is very disincentivized to accept the high degree of influence that stochasticity or randomness has on success or failure because it completely contradicts their social history as I did this and therefore there was this effect. And so again, what you tend to see, and by the way, we should give some break to the, to the CEOs, entrepreneurs, et cetera, in this industry. This is also true of oil and gas, for example, other industries which have that, that, that not dirty, but that less prestigious regulatory or social status, right? Sure. They, they don't, they don't collect or sequester high value educational institutions outputs for their, for their staff or employees. Mm -hmm. But what you need to do, I think what's better is try to determine what, what are all the complicated factors that contributed to your success such that you can identify and replicate them. If you assume the mere fact that a product has survived is identical with its goodness, you'll never be able to replicate that success. And now that could be true for a product. We know many companies in the history of the dietary supplement industry who had a single product and then they fizzled out over time, or it could be individuals who only have one brand or not successful at perpetuating business. Because mm -hmm. one business is somewhat of a fluke, multiple businesses demonstrate some degree of competency. Right. And to me, that competency is not, not falling prey to survivorship or survivor bias. Mm -hmm. Not simply accepting that because it survived, it's good. Trying to determine why it survived. And that survival is difficult to determine because, it, again, it pushes against the conceptual rigidity. You have to be open to the fact that the thing that you designed maybe didn't survive because you designed it. Or maybe maybe it survived due to factors that are in, entirely immaterial to your intentions. Mm -hmm. Because once you release a product out there into the world, you don't get to determine its success. The people who buy it determine its success. And things can be entirely random. What's successful? Furbies. I'm not sure if you remember Furbies. I do. Furbies were successful despite much more technically competent market entries and despite more sophisticated marketing campaigns, but they survived. So if you were attempting to replicate Furby success and you simply copied a Furby and introduced it into the market now, it would flop, right? Sure. But if you did a comprehensive socioeconomic analysis of what was happening in the market when Furbies were introduced? What was happening with children's marketing specifically or toys that were marketed to children? How was it introduced? How did it perpetuate itself? Blah, blah, blah. Then you'd have a, a replicable strategy for success. And then I think maybe because we're running out of time, I'll quickly identify a last one, which is only examining the most successful things and not paying attention to the average. Yeah. So this, let's take this out of the context of business. Uh, look at bodybuilders. Professional bodybuilders infuriate me when they talk it. I want to stab my eye with a rusty spoon because they'll constantly ignore the contribution of genetics to their success and only identify their diet. But if you were inclined to research, you would know that what, what we've discovered through genomic research specifically is that both in terms of hypertrophy or capacity for hypertrophy, hyper, 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 I'm having a stroke, hypertrophy. Oh, <laughs> did you see that? I smell burnt toast. <laughs> you just watched the stroke in real time. Everybody's now seeing uh, what happens when you talk too long and it's having a stroke. So uh, both in terms of skeletal muscle hypertrophy, as well as distribution, right? Or morphology, those are almost exclusively genetically determined by a factor of about 0.8. So 80% of the inter-individual variance in capacity for skeletal muscle hypertrophy and their distribution out, I should say also phenotypic variations of between type one, type mm -hmm. two and type two X genomic. And then there's an, an additional 10% that's constituted by shared environment. So that means there's 10%, there's still a high degree of, of inter-individual variation that consists in what you do with your life and your diet and your training, et cetera, et cetera. But 90% is constituted by your genetics or shared environment. Right. So if you're only looking at the top individuals and those individuals are telling you it's because of my diet, you'll assume that it's their diet. But if you take that diet and training regime and you apply it to somebody who's not at the 99th percentile in genetic capacity for skeletal muscle hypertrophy, but is at the 20th percentile, 
It may be somewhat effective, but what would be more effective is applying the research validated methods done on normal populations. Mm -hmm. So in other words, this is a, an against averages bias. They don't play the averages. They only look at absolutely what's most successful. So you'll, you'll be having a discussion and they only care about what, what did company X, what does Tesla do? Well, no offense, but I don't give a fuck what Tesla does. Tesla is successful despite Elon Musk's almost innumerable characterological defects. It's because he himself is beyond, he's transcendentally or transcendentally yet yeah, intelligent. He transcends the normal distribution for intelligence, probably verbally, mathematically. It's like asking or saying, I'm going to model my game as I'm a 5'10 white dude who can barely touch the rim. I'm going to model my game off LeBron James. I don't want to model my game off LeBron James because LeBron James is perhaps the best basketball player who's ever lived. Now, if LeBron James is sufficiently introspective, he would have considerable insights to deliver me based on his success. Right. But we shouldn't conflate success with introspection or we shouldn't conflate success with the capacity to teach. The people who are best at things are often hot garbage at teaching them to other to others, sorry, precisely because they're not sufficiently neurotic to examine their own behaviors. So this bias plays into people only asking what have the best done? Well, you don't only have to look at exemplary models. What about the other 98th percentiles below that? What constitutes their success on average? So you're looking for something like replicability. So before you run off, let me ask you then, uh, well, let's make sure we know to everyone that has made this far in the video, because we sh surely have a few CEOs that <laughs> like have made 10, this far. You're <laughs> talking about the 10 people who are still with us. <laughs> well, most of those 10 people are probably leaders in our industry. So I want to make sure we're not calling all of you assholes. Um, what, what is the take home message? Because for me, on my side, it's that certain amount of conservatism and those attributes that may have sounded negative are what got them to get the ball rolling. It's it's right. almost a certain amount of uh, arrogance and uh, egotisticness that, that told them I can do this, get started, and they've gotten this far. For, for me, the message is don't worry about being a little bit more introspective, uh, delegating some work to others that do have those attributes that are probably more applicable to those areas. W mm -hmm. What exactly do you see like going forward 2021? If you had a message for all of these people, what is it? Right. So one of the interesting things about the big five personality in index is that it's stable over time. That's why they call it taxonomical and not merely a classification. It's not arbitrary. If you test someone in early adulthood and you test them when they're 50, their index score for these very, these five traits will be almost identical. Right. So disposition does not vary over time. Neither does it vary by social circumstance. It's why it's highly heritable. You inherit this personality type or style through a combination of your genes and shared environment, and then, it, and then it determines your trajectory throughout your life. You can, however, practice self-awareness. So self-awareness is highly associated with neuroticism, but it's not confined or circumscribed within neuroticism alone. You can develop self-aware practices to understand at what am I deficient and how do I outsource that? Either outsource it from outside my company or delegate it within my company. That's how you shore up your deficiencies. It's a Lincoln's team of rivals. You can't change yourself. Just accept who you are. And by the way, we're all, uh, I, for example, score very, very low in extroversion. Like I'm 90th percentile low in extroversion, super introvert, somewhat conscientious, very, very high in openness to experience high neuroticism. I'm a super shitty person. So in case anyone's wondering, like <laughs> I'm applying all of these analyses to myself. I'm just as petty and vain and stupid and ignorant and convinced of my own intelligence as anybody else is. So I would make a terrible CEO probably. But that self-awareness causes me to pair with people who do, who, who complement my deficiencies. And that's, I think, the way that you mitigate against what can in certain circumstances be detrimental. The other thing, is to never consider them binary. Everything that we just talked about is not good or bad. So for every negative component of a cognitive bias, they also function as what's called a positive heuristic. They are mental or cognitive shortcuts that allow us to eliminate superfluous or extraneous detail and cut right to the heart of the decision. Somebody like me, I don't do that. I'm too analytical. I analyze, I'll write you a dissertation on all of the reasons we shouldn't do X. But then if you ask me, should we do Y, I'll go, Give me some time to think about it. A, a dispositionally conservative individual doesn't go through that. And that is a very valuable characteristic in a CEO. So it's a combination of developing self-awareness practices where you can identify 
at what you perform poorly and then delegate or outsource that if it's not your core competency. And then two, accepting who you are, leaning into your strengths to the point where they mitigate, mitigate against your weaknesses. I can see that pretty well. I can see the strengths and making quick decisions and sticking with them, but also having someone with those traits like yourself, like that, that introspection and that, that real, like sit down, write a dissertation about something. I can see that really complimenting well. So yeah. I know you have places to be. This has been a, a riveting hour. I'm sure I see a lot of emails being sent my way about this, this podcast. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. Thank you so much. I'm sure we'll have to get back on for a little bit more uh, marketing, uh, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. But this was a fun intro to the mind of Kenton. So thank you so much for joining. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate you having me.